Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I was climbing through the, you know, through the, the, the ranks and, 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 and getting to the top of that ladder, realizing that a lot of the women who had graduated at the same time as me had kind of stalled halfway. Uh, I made it to, as you mentioned, VP, senior VP, executive VP roles, and uh, finding, finding myself very often the only woman around the decision-making table, uh, reporting to male pale, stale boards, and not quite understanding how come I made it, me, the immigrant, made it to the top of, you know, one of Canada's largest uh, medical expertise firms, or I worked for Bell Canada as well. I worked for a lot of uh, leadership development and, and coaching firms as well. And, and not quite understanding how it was possible that I would get there, but these women who were born and raised in Canada actually stalled way sooner than I. And this is when I kind of started to um, research it, understand what it was, what stopped them. And then I realized that one of the, the self-imposed obstacles that women too often have is um, the lack of self-confidence, um, underestimating themselves, um, having trouble coming out of their comfort zone and overcoming their fears. But to me, all of that I had tackled when I was only 17 years old and I had to go and sell myself in Paris and find a job and find an apartment. Anybody who's ever lived in Paris knows that to just find an apartment in the heart of Paris, well, you'd better be made tough because there's a lineup and for them to choose you when you have no money, no parents, nothing to show for, you'd better be able to talk about your, you know, what you've got to bring to these people and why they should trust you and why they should give you this apartment or give you this job. So I had done all of that at a very young age. I had no choice. If I wanted to eat, if I wanted to have a roof over my head, then I needed to work it out because nobody was going to come and save me. How you day, how you day, happy, happy new year, happy 2020. I'm hoping you get to see the future Claire for the first time. I'm hoping you get your 2020 vision. All right, enough with the eye puns and the eye jokes. I really hope that this is your decade, this is your year, this is your best year yet, and that you are energized, you're focused, and you are on a mission to be the best version of yourself 
and to make your environment the best environment that it can be. I couldn't think of a better way to start this year with an episode from Caroline Kotze. Now, she's someone that I've gotten to know in the past year, and she even wrote one of uh, the blurbs in the book, my, my book, Use Your Difference to Make a Difference. So I'm really excited to introduce her to you. She's the founder of Women in Governance, and she has been a champion of diversity, inclusion, and women empowerment. And in this episode, we're going to hear her story of bravery and how she came from an area of conflict to really become the champion for equality that she is now. So I'm hoping that as you hear her story of bravery, her story of courage, and her story of, of just going against the status quo, you become that person yourself, a person that is not afraid to be his, her, or themselves. Okay? Enjoy the episode. And remember, I'm always available for you to chat, to reach out, to talk, or to um, you know d- discuss what your goals are. I also have training programs that you can access on the website. So I'm always looking forward to learning more about you and uh, making sure that you're the best version of yourself. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is Caroline Kudzi. Caroline Kudzi is the President and founder of Women in Governance, a nonprofit created in 2010 with mission to encourage women to develop their leadership, advance their career, and access executive leadership roles as well as board seats. Women in Governance programs has a very deep and concrete impact for gender parity in Canada and throughout the world, as we're going to discuss. We're going to discuss as she's expanding into different areas. She's also been someone who's a citizen of the world, having lived on three continents. She was born in Beirut, and when she was only seven years old uh, during the war, and uh, as she started to grow, she became someone that used her experience throughout the war in, in Beirut to start to speak about impacts of equality and become this highly sought after uh, person that has been nominated by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, as well as the someone who has been a recipient of numerous national and international awards. She's one that is a voice to, to be recognized and re- respected in the diversity and inclusion world, and she's kind enough to grace our time here on the podcast to talk about her newest initiatives. Welcome to the show, Caroline. Well, thank you, Tayo. It's an honor to be here. The pleasure is mine. So your bio, your bio is a mouthful, right? You've done a lot. Currently, you are the president and founder of Women and Governors. But as a citizen of the world, I'm very curious if you could peel back the layers of what it was like to grow up the way you did. Well, it was quite uh, the experience, I have to say, in hindsight, that it probably brought me a lot of the leadership characteristics that uh, people know me for. But uh, quite frankly, when I was living through the war, it uh, was a little bit harder to see the good aspect of it or the bright side. But, um, you know, the Lebanese people tend to have this extremely strong skin. And, uh, you know, I always say it's like the eagle that just keeps being born from its ashes, the phoenix. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> Lebanese people are very well known for their optimism, their positiveness, and uh, their resilience, quite frankly. And uh, when I was, a, I mean, I was only seven years old when the war started, and I was 22 when it ended. And during that period, we lived through some very difficult times in the war in Lebanon, but we also had periods of of, um, of time where we fled the war and went to Nice in France. We went to Paris. We went to Montreal. We went back to Beirut. 
And so we kind of, you know, it's quite interesting that the, the name of your podcast, uh, uh, Nomads, because uh, that really resonates with me. I never studied more than two years in the same school during my entire uh, childhood, my teenage years, all the way till, you know, until the time that I became an adult woman and, and moved permanently to Canada. I was almost 23 years old at, at the time. So a lot of uh, a lot of experiences that you don't typically go through when you're just a child or a teenager. Oh, I can imagine. And even thinking about what it's like to grow up during war, that must have been an interesting experience in terms of trauma or family or just learning how to be independent. I, I grew up under two dictatorships, but under war, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty there. You know, I, I wonder if that yeah. impacted how you saw the world. Well, you know, uh, I honestly believe that this war that I lived through and then fleeing the war when I was only 17, uh, I went to Paris on my own with no parents, no money, uh, having no other choice than to swim or to sink. I am convinced that these experiences have forged my personality. Uh, as a child, I, I have to say that, you know, when you're seven years old and you hear the news and you hear the bombs and you see them in the sky, you know, the, the, the sky that turns orange all of a sudden because it's, you've got all those bombshells going from, from one side of the city to, to the other, you don't, you know, really realize because you don't, it feels like you're in a movie. You don't really realize you could die or yeah. something terrible could happen. You don't, grasp it at that age but what you do grasp is when you see that your mother is crying or your father's face looks really serious and that nobody has time for you and uh, uh, there's kind of a panic at home and uh, with your neighbors with your family everybody's talking extremely seriously and there's no more time for fun and games right and you're not quite understanding what's going on uh this is when you get even more scared than seeing a bomb go through the sky because then you realize oh my god if my parents are scared you, you you're not you know it doesn't jive in a small child's brain that yeah. your parents is, are scared, that your mother is crying. Uh, I would say this is really when I understood that something something bad was going on. That's so true because you talk about about the idea of not even grasping what's happening. It becomes normal to you. People always ask me, how did, how did you spend the first nine years of your life in a military dictatorship? Wasn't it terrible? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I we would just get used to someone dying or someone exiled or there was this bomb or you just, it becomes routine where don't go out this time. Don't say this here. And you don't know any better. Honestly, you just like, oh, OK, but you only start to feel it when someone in your family is really affected, because then you start to get the fear like oh, our uncle just lost his life. And I'm like, oh, shoot, that that's going to happen here. And exactly. it's. Yeah. Ah, okay. Can you realize that you're not, you know, you're mortal. Your family is mortal. Anything could happen. Yeah. And then yeah. it just brings you to something that you're not used to dealing with as, you know, as a child, you know, born in, in Beirut, I, from zero to seven, I grew up in a well-to-do family, very respected. We had everything we wanted. And, and these are not notions that you can 
really wrap your head around when all of a sudden you understand that, you know, your neighbors died or a bomb fell into the building next door, or there were a lot of snipers also in Lebanon. So you can be walking in the street and somebody could just get taken out by someone who's on a roof and who's just killing anybody that they see. So it's, it's, it's madness. It's total, complete madness. It's very difficult to wrap your head around situations like this. But frankly, Tayo, I have to say that I think it must have been much harder for my mother than for my brother and I. Because as children and then teenagers, well, I guess, you know, I I figured I'm not I'm not dying. I just in my mind, I'm not dying. This is not happening. And I want to have fun. And I don't care if bombs are falling. It's Saturday night. And I want to go out. I want to be with my friends. And I used to do crazy things. So I think that for my mother, it must have been even harder because today as a mother, I would die of, 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 uh, of uh, fear if I knew that my daughter at the, at the time, you know, at, at 15 or 16 or 17 years old, it's yeah. just out on her bicycle or on her motorbike. Actually, I had a motorbike, uh, uh, believe it or not, in Beirut and, and, and going around in a city where uh, the worst could happen at any street corner. Yeah, no, I can. I know. I think you're right. I mean, I can only imagine, especially now as with you as a parent. But it's interesting, the perspective you get as a mother, because I think then you're like, ah, ah. I'm just going around hanging out with my friends and mommy being over, overly protective, but they're probably seeing the bigger picture and they understand the implications of what uh, your mortality actually is. Well, exactly. I mean, yeah. you know, we the other thing is at that time during the war, there were no telecommunications like today, right? Of course, we had no cell phones. I mean, I'm, you know, uh, we're talking in the 70s and 80s, right? So mm. no cell phones, uh, even landlines, uh, there were very long periods of time where we had no phones. So let's say we would go out and then there would be bombshells and they would close the streets and you can't go back home. And so you're sleeping wherever you are and you can't even tell your mother that you're still alive. And sometimes we were blocked for two or three days. They had no news. They had absolutely no concept of whether their children were alive or something had happened, or they're in a hospital or in a morgue. So I, 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 I'm very thankful that uh, my parents didn't get a heart attack because I used to go out all the time. I've always had this very, very strong fiber for freedom. And for, I'm, I'm, I've always been to this day very much of a social butterfly. I love people. I need to be surrounded by people. This is how I, I thrive. This is how I grow. So no matter what was going on, and even at the risk of my life, I have had to go out. And I did it despite, uh, you know, my parents telling me they were very progressive people, extremely progressive. Um, and and I didn't listen. I, <laughs> I would just go out and uh, be with my friends. And that, that was sort of my way of fighting back this stupid yeah. war. Well, speaking of freedom, you are an inspiration to women globally, right? It's not just Canada. It's not just in Lebanon. It's everywhere in the world. And you have achieved, you know, leadership roles, VP, SVP roles. You've been named one of the 100 most powerful women in Canada. You empower women all over the world. And I'm just curious as to when you knew that you had found your calling. Because if we look up women empowerment, your name is right there. If we look (laughs) up making people uh, experience the full spectrum of their femininity, 
you're right there. So walk me through that journey. Well, when I when I arrived in Canada, I was, um, as I mentioned, almost 23, very, very ambitious. I had been through, uh, well, obviously war, as we discussed, but also I had just spent five, almost six years on my own in Paris, no parents, no money, having had to put myself through school um, and then university. So I had two jobs. Um, while putting myself through school and university, I still managed to graduate with honors. I arrived in Montreal with that same ambitious and, uh, you know, drive. And I, I think that it was actually a blessing because then I realized as my career progressed very rapidly and I was climbing through the, you know, through the, the, the ranks and, 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 getting to the top of that ladder, realizing that a lot of the women who had graduated at the same time as me had kind of stalled halfway. Uh, I made it to, as you mentioned, VP, senior VP, executive VP roles, and uh, founding, finding myself very often the only woman around the decision-making table, uh, reporting to male pale, stale boards, and not quite understanding how come I made it, me, the immigrant, made it to the top of, you know, one of Canada's largest uh, medical expertise firms, or I worked for Bell Canada as well. I worked for a lot of uh, leadership development and, and coaching firms as well, and, and not quite understanding how it was possible that I would get there, but these women who were born and raised in Canada actually stalled way sooner than I. And this is when I kind of started to... Um, research it, understand what it was, what stopped them. And then I realized that one of the, the self-imposed obstacles that women too often have is um, the lack of self-confidence, um, underestimating themselves, um, having trouble coming out of their comfort zone and overcoming their fears. But to me, all of that I had tackled when I was only 17 years old and I had to go and sell myself in Paris and find a job and find an apartment. Anybody who's ever lived in Paris knows that to just find an apartment in the heart of Paris, well, you better be made tough because there's a lineup and for them to choose you when you have no money, no parents, nothing to show for, you'd better be able to talk about your, you know, what you've got to bring to these people and why they should trust you and why they should give you this apartment or give you this job. So I had done all of that at a very young age. I had no choice. If I wanted to eat, if I wanted to have a roof over my head, then I needed to work it out because nobody was going to come and save me. So mm. I did all of that. And arriving in Canada, that same sort of dynamics that fueled me for these years continued on and was even amplified because when I arrived here, for me, it was just very clear that there was a world of possibilities, that this, even the sky wasn't the limit here. And I didn't realize at the time that there were actually that many obstacles for women. So I think that that ignorance was clearly bliss. Because I never let it slow me down. There were no, there was no bias in my mind that would prevent me from just giving it my hundred percent and not ever taking no for an answer. Yeah. Wow. Um, there's a lot to unpack there because the, the immediate follow-up that I have to that is based on the experience you have, what is it that you see is the biggest problem companies are 
you know, perpetuating in order to keep this barrier between the genders. I get that you, you know, you had this mindset, maybe it's part being Lebanese, part being the amazing person you are, you had this internal drive and you didn't um, necessarily see the bias there, but as you have started to see it in companies where it's been systemized, what do you think is the reason why we have all these pay gaps, all these lack of opportunities and in the STEM field and in the tech field? So I'm just curious from that. So, so it's quite striking to see how men that you would consider to be progressive, uh, that you would consider to be um, very educated, very successful, uh, still don't necessarily see the value of diversity around the decision-making table. There are more than 600 companies that are publicly traded in Canada. Uh, 211 of them, so that's a third, don't even have one woman around the boardroom table. So they are boards that are completely composed of men, for the pro most part, white. So what these me white men need to understand beyond just saying that they are for diversity and that they cannot find these women that they're looking for, they need to understand that they, they're not doing us a favor. They're doing themselves a favor by allowing more women in um, on the board, on the executive committee, anywhere that decisions are being made, simply because men and women have the same capacities, the same experiences, the same education. Actually, women are even a little bit more successful at university. There's 60% of university graduates. They tend to be to hold the, 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 the higher degrees and, and the better marks simply because they are so detail-oriented. They're so focused on, on, on what, they, what they're trying to achieve, which then when, they, when it translates into the workplace, is actually coming back to bite them because they are so focused on the content of what they need to deliver that they completely forget to network, they completely forget to um, play the political game and uh, interact with the, those people who need to see them in action while their male counterpart next door may have not even completed half of, of his task or his assignment, but he's already out in the corridor talking about how great he is. And you know what, at the end of the day, people are gonna believe him and I'm sure he's great, but the woman who's in the office next door, and if she doesn't actually go out in this corridor and discuss what she's been doing and how proud she is of her achievements, if she doesn't focus on that piece, then it's very detrimental to her career. And this is something that I mastered at a very young age because I have learned to do just the bare minimum that will allow me to succeed at something because I need to move on to the next thing because I have a lot of ambition and I have a lot of things that I want to accomplish. And you know what? This is good enough. I've got this, I would say, maybe male fiber in me where, okay, I think this will fly. I will present this and I will spend the rest of the time talking to the president of the organization, talking to my colleagues, talking to people in other departments to see if there are great opportunities over there. And so this is one of the things that, you know, there's, so there's two, two aspects to it. One is the women don't do it enough. And two, the organizations don't tend to understand that they need to facilitate this because if they only focus on what they see, which is these men who are putting themselves out there without giving women all the tools that they need 
to, you know, get mentorship, get sponsorship, get all the support that they, additional support that they will require to, to move up their profile within the organization, then it's the organization that loses. Because if these women get discouraged and decide halfway to just call it quits, especially at the time where women start, uh, you know, bearing children and uh, considering maybe not coming back, sorry, not coming back from a maternity leave. Uh, that, that is really terrible because these women are in their 30s or in their early 40s and they are starting to make a really good contribution to the organization. And if we don't recognize that we need to... Ch- Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com change things within the organization that too often organizations that too often have been built by men for men. And if we leave it that way and just say, come on, women, you can do it. We believe in you. Just jump and you'll, you'll make it to the top. No, we need to recognize that there are some very specific, very specific actions that organizations need to implement some policies, procedures, initiatives, and they need to be vocal about it. And the tone at the top is extremely important. And not enough CEOs are actually being vocal about the importance of diversity. And not enough CEOs are championing this. It cannot come from HR. It cannot come just from the diversity and inclusion person. It needs to be a very solid mandate that the CEO is giving. Mm. And I agree. It, it can't be in the HR silo. It can't be in the people development silo. It's something that has to be top down as well as bottom up. So, okay. Yeah. Now, you obviously, you, you talked about these things and people underestimate the idea of what it's like when you have, a, you know, just even a gender inclusive workplace. But do you find that different countries approach gender diversity, you know, uh, differently? You know, you're familiar with Europe. You're familiar yes. with the United States and North America, yes. and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, Asian or South, Latin American part, South America part, but I'm curious to hear if different continents approach it in a different way. It is, yes, it, it is interesting. There are some points in common, obviously. There are things that you will um, that you will see again and again in every company, everywhere. I've given conferences and in a lot of different corners of you know this planet i spoke in in st petersburg i spoke in new delhi i spoke in lima and casablanca uh i spoke in paris and london uh in dubai in bahrain and it's interesting to see how everybody no matter where they are will tell you 
that they want to see more women succeed. They will tell you that they understand the value of female leadership, the female vision, why they have a different perspective and it's just better business sense to get women's perspective uh, in, in collaboration with the men's perspectives. Of course, consensus will not be as quickly uh, attained, but definitely the decision, whatever it is, is going to be more robust when men and women are looking at it together. So things that I've seen, you know, like there are countries, like even my own country, Lebanon, only a third of women work. So forget, you know, are you making it to the top? Are you a CEO? Are you on a board? Just have a job, only a third of women. For a lot of women in certain countries, Arab countries, uh, it's not even an objective. Uh, some even have uh, masters or doctorates and they don't do that to become uh, you know, to get any kind of big job. They just do that for the education because they don't see themselves in an organization. You know that saying, if she sees it, she can be it. I think that is instrumental. So in certain countries, it only makes it a lot easier for younger generations to project themselves in such a role. Now, there are countries that have tackled this in a different way. So I think in Canada, we're extremely fortunate to have a prime minister, Justin Trudeau, who is very vocal about being a feminist. So he speaks about gender equality not being the right thing, but the smart thing for our companies, for our politics, for our economy as a whole. So the entire society will win when there will be more women that are uh, that can contribute uh, to to society at the same levels as their male counterparts. Yeah. yeah. But what we don't have either in Canada or in the United States is a legislation that will force organizations to have more women. That there is a lot of companies in uh, there. There's a lot of countries. I'm sorry, a lot of countries in Europe that have adopted legislation. So quotas of women on corporate boards. Uh, the Scandinavian countries are the first ones to have done so, and then several other European countries have followed suit. France, for instance, has double the number of women on corporate boards than Canada or the States. If you look at Canada, we've, we've got about the same numbers, Canada and the States, where if you look at the um, uh, top 500 uh, organizations in, in, in Canada, or the F, which we call the FP500, uh, there is about 22% of women on boards, 22, 23%. In France, they've got 40% of women on boards, thanks to that legislation. So what that does, by forcing uh, organizations to have 40% of women on their boards, the, the government is just saying, because we know that there will be a positive impact on your financial performance, even if you don't see it, ABC Inc. or XYZ Inc., if you don't see it, we're going to force you, and there will be a positive impact on your financial performance, which will mean that you will be uh, employing more people, there will be less unemployment, you will be paying more taxes, our country is going to thrive more, and women will be able to, to contribute. And because we're looking for more women on boards, we need to train them, we need to prep them, we need to have, um, uh, from, from entry level all the way to the executive committee, we need to have programs that are implemented in every organization so that women can actually 
play these roles. And if you don't, then there will be consequences. And it's very interesting that in France, organizations have actually all complied. There have been no, uh, you know, they, they, they've, they've threatened that if you don't comply, then your directors will not get uh, remuneration. We will, uh, for, you know, we, we won't allow it. Uh, your company could even get delisted from the stock exchange. So it's very, very serious threats. But at the end of the day, they've never had to, to implement it because organizations have realized that it's in their best interest. So it's quite interesting to see that dynamic over there. But, you know, that macho mentality uh, still prevails. Whereas in Canada, I think women uh, culturally were, you know, more respected, more, uh, you know, men wouldn't tell us some of the things that the French men would tell their, their, their female counterparts. Yet, they get a chance to play a bigger role within uh, corporate boards because of that legislation, which which we don't have in Canada. And uh, I'm not sure we ever will. I, I don't know. I've been lobbying a lot in that sense because I see the benefits uh, firsthand, but I'm not sure that it will uh, it will fly. Now, there are other countries like India, for instance, that is still struggling with, I mean, it's the rape capital of the world. And even this weekend, there were, again, other, uh, you know, a woman who was raped and then burnt. And there are still horrible, horrible things that are happening. But in parallel of that, there are amazing women that are working very hard at uh, not only raising their own leadership levels, but also creating unbelievable organization like the... Uh, the um, what is it called? They've got this huge organization in New Delhi. I actually got an award there about a year ago um, that simply um, is mind boggling. They are now international there. It's the the WEF, the, the it's, um, obviously not the World Economic Forum, but the uh, I can't remember. It's got something right. similar something, to something world. Exactly. <laughs> something world and women. Uh, oh, it's the Women Economic Forum. That's what it's called. It's the Women's Economic Forum, which is funny because they took the same acronym as the World Economic Forum. And uh, and they there, it's groundbreaking. They're bringing women from all over the planet to 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 India to share their uh, share their knowledge, their share their experience, etc. Gotcha. So it's but it's it's interesting because everybody on this planet says that they want this because it's kind of trendy. Not everybody understands why and the implications, but I think we're moving uh, very rapidly towards something that is going to be uh, more and more, you know, they say the future is female. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And one of the reasons I was asking you that is because, you know, we do live in a time where some people and some institutions really feel like it affects their profits. It's we're in a, two, we're in a PC world. Uh, politically correct world um, for those that don't understand and that it's not a big deal. You know, people are making much ado about nothing. There are people that say, well, the wage gap is a myth and they have their stats to say this. And, you know, I just wonder if you ever come across a lot of resistance from people who would say, well, women, they give birth, they don't work as hard, they shouldn't get paid as much. <laughs> We should get paid more. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I think women are I, I, women are the, the original CEOs, especially because yeah. of what they have to do. But 
I get I, I've gotten that pushback as a man. I can't imagine how much you get as a woman. I guess, I guess oh, for sure. I mean, you know, there's always, always people who have their own theory. And I regularly get stupid comments on social media of, you know, when I when I will say, um, for instance, I uh, I shared uh, something on, on on social media yesterday where it was a panel of uh, I don't know maybe a dozen white men and they're talking to this one uh, woman who seems to be maybe a woman of mixed uh, background etc. and they're asking her so what do you think you could bring to our organization and it's quite interesting to see that you know probably. I don't know, 90% or 95% of comments were very positive saying, well, finally, it's about time that they get it, that they need to recruit uh, people of diversity, et cetera. But there will always be one or two men who come with silly comments saying, come on, what are you doing with this? Don't you know that this doesn't exist? We're in Canada. It's 2019. This is absurd. And you're thinking, wait a minute, are you seriously telling me that you think that this doesn't exist? Because yeah. I will give you my statistics and you will see that not only does it exist, but it's a third of organizations. So, you know, people who pull stats from, I don't know from where, I, I, I know my stats and their origins and it's very easy to verify. And it's, uh, you know, consulting firms like McKinsey and Company, it's uh, uh, headhunting firms like the Corn Ferries and the Spencer Stewarts of this world that have all this data. And it's also the government here in Canada. We do measure for the gender wage gap. So government gives you the data that to this day there is there is a gap and that despite legislation, we absolutely have to um, keep an eye on it. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, there will always be people who are going to try to convince you that they are not... Uh, that there is no problem, that gender equality has been attained and that uh, women, uh, what are they asking for? What do they want? What more do they want? Don't they yeah. already want it all? Gotcha. So, yeah, it's interesting. But there's always, you know, people who need to get, I think, this sensitivity. Uh, they need to, um, because sometimes it doesn't come from a bad place, right? Sometimes it's just ignorance. So sharing the information, trying to stay calm while you do it, that to me is uh, pretty much uh, the, um, the biggest uh, challenge. <laughs> I can, well, yeah, I can imagine. But um, okay, well then, obviously that segues into what you do. You run an amazing organization called Women in Governance. Can you tell us what you're up to? You're, I know you're expanding. You just got a, a big deal. What's the next step and how are you leading the, the, uh, the forefront in making sure different organizations um, can really work with your principles. So we've been very fortunate to get pro bono support from McKinsey and Company in 2016 to build something that I had in the back of my mind for years, which was to create a parity certification. So support organizations to uh, modify some of their policies, to also just audit what what the situation is in terms of uh, equal representation of men and women at every level of the organization. So when 
McKinsey said that, yes, they are ready to support us to build this. Uh, that was the best day of my life. Uh, we then started working with a very large uh, committee of uh, volunteers who are all VPs of human resources, of diversity and inclusion in major organizations who believed in this, uh, in the importance of, of, of having this uh, happening. Um, and so this certification year one, which was in 2017, 17 organizations uh, got certified. And then every year we've almost doubled. Uh, we've got nearly 60 organizations that have gone through the process uh, now. And uh, we've, we're extremely excited that this is now entering the United States. We've got a separate platform with um with the U.S. lingo and, you know, there's a few little differences in terms of legislation between Canada and the U.S., so it all reflects that. And and now we're going to uh, offer our certification across the U.S.A. Uh, we've got very big, very, very big announcements coming up in February as well in terms of who our partners are in the U.S. We've got great support from the Canadian government as well. So we're going to be holding events at the Quebec delegation as well as the Canadian consulate. Um, and uh, you know, the, the, the government and the prime minister himself, Justin Trudeau, have always been extremely supportive of all our actions because I've always said that you know it's one thing just to support women through mentoring and governance training, which we've been doing for years. Uh, we've got hundreds of women who've been through our programs, but at the end of the day, uh, Fixing the women, if you will, i.e. Um, supporting them to come out of their uh, comfort zone, to understand their value, to be able to sell themselves is one thing. But then if the organization is not really prepared for them and if they don't modify anything to allow them to thrive, then it's not going to work. Um, so this certification is one of the reasons why I've been invited to speak uh, all over the planet because it's extremely uh, powerful, it's extremely impactful and, and successful. And we've got organizations from all walks of life that have been uh, involved with us, whether banking, uh, insurance, mining, IT, uh, telecom, you name it. We've got organizations that, that um, are in that field. Even the highly male-dominated industries have been coming uh, to us by dozens because they understand the value. And then we rank them from bronze to platinum and we support them. We give them all the best practices. We give them benchmarking and we support them for a whole year. And a year later, they will recertify and hopefully we'll be able to achieve a higher level. So we've got organizations that have actually moved from bronze all the way to platinum in, in three years that we're very proud of. We've got other organizations like Rolls-Royce, for instance, who have failed, didn't make it even to the bronze level, but are very proud to say, listen, we are in a male-dominated industry. We've got 85% men in our company, but we want to change. So yes, we feel the certification, but it has given us all the tools that we need to be able to move the needle and we are committed. So they've been vocal. Other organizations that have failed have decided to be silent and it's their their entire, you know, they're, they're, they're allowed to do that. We don't give the names of those that have failed because they prefer to stay under the radar. But I think Rolls-Royce was brilliant to actually advertise it and say, uh, yes, we're not doing well, but yes, we do want to change and we are putting everything in place to, to modify this. 
That's brilliant. I think having a system in place that really keeps people accountable is, is so key. It's one of the things that allows people to, one, have a standard to know where they can meet and to grade themselves in in relation to what they did in previous years as well as to what's happening in the industry. So you right. take it, yeah, taking it forefront of this is, is key. I, and as a diversity and inclusion consultant, I, I often get those type of questions. What are the benchmarks? How do we know what we're doing? And you just doing this is it's going to make a lot of things easier. So um, I'm excited. Yeah. yeah, I'm excited for this. How can people try and get more involved with you? Because I imagine that people listening who might be in, in the workplace and saying, well, I want my organization to do that. How can we reach out? What would they say? So they can go on our website, womeninGovernance.org. Um, where they will see a um, well, they will see the multitude of uh, programs that we have. But the there's a button for certification, and this is where they can get their organization excited about this program, and then contact us. And we're more than happy. We've got a big team that is uh, uh, dedicated to speaking to uh, heads of HR, of communications, CEOs, chairs of boards, people who are getting it and who want to uh, get additional support to move the needles. So womeningovernance.org. And we're also uh, very easy to find on social media, on LinkedIn, on uh, Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Awesome. I'll make sure I put that in the show notes because you really should check out Caroline's work. It's uh, it's kind of impressive. Last question before I let you go. It's my mission statement reframed as a question. So Caroline, how do you use your difference to make a difference? (laughs) <laughs> so, um, and uh, I'm a big, 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 big fan of your book. Thank uh, you so much. Yes. Uh, I would say that in my case, um, it's interesting that when I was in the corporate world before being a full-time employee of Women in Governance, um, I was often told that I needed to tone it down that I needed to be less accessible, uh, put a distance between me and my employees, and that I was too transparent. And I told them that, quite frankly, I thought that they were wrong, that we should all aim to be authentic, authentic leaders, to build strong bonds and even personal bonds with our team, and that all those years and all that I've lived through during the war had made me uh, a very, um, I would say, someone who's not scared to talking to anybody. So even when I was in entry-level roles, I would go and speak to the CEO, to the SVP, and people thought, well, you can't do that. That's not politically correct. And I said, well, you know what? I'm doing it. And <laughs> you should try doing it too, and you'll see it works. And I think I've really made a difference in ev- in every organization where I've worked because I actually gave permission to others to behave in these manners that they thought were not uh, suitable. And today, it's interesting to see how many coaches and how many leadership gurus will say, be transparent, be authentic, be accessible to your teams and and connect with your bond with your team. And I'm thinking, aha, funny how 25 years ago they were telling me that this was wrong. And I, I can pride myself to have never wanted to listen and to say, this is how I roll. And this is my difference, I guess. And I invite you to join in. Yeah. Using your difference to make a difference by not compromising on your values and who you are and remaining true to yourself, even though sometimes people thought it would cost you. There you go. Exactly. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Caroline, for coming on the show. It's been a true pleasure hearing 
what you have to say. I, I, I love how you broke down what we need to do, how we need to raise accountability. But I also love that you're not just all talk, you're action as well. Your organization is actively certifying other organizations to make sure that they are doing what they're saying they want to do or aspiring to be the, the gender equality uh, organizations that they can be. So thank you for the work you do. Well, thank you so much. It was a true pleasure to be with you, Tayo. I love your show. I love your podcast. Love your book. And I'm, I'm honored to uh, have uh, had this opportunity to, to share. And uh, I'll uh, see you uh, more and more as I spend more time in the United States over the next uh, few months and years. Yes, please. Thank you so much for all the work you do. Ladies, you. <laughs> well, ladies, gentlemen, and gender non-binary individuals, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.